In Washington, the first thing people read in the morning is Jewish Insider's daily kickoff. The second thing might be a toss-up between Politico Playbook and a new Capitol Hill-focused newsletter called Punchbowl News. For Washington, these newsletters set the agenda of the day. Everyone reads them. Politicians, staff, TV producers, newspaper editors, and reporters. Our special guest today, Jake Sherman, co-founder of Punchbowl News and the former co-author of Politico Playbook. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, a wonderful week in Washington last week, the celebration of Israel's Independence Day uh, formally uh, with people from all walks of life, political parties, countries represented, uh, coming to celebrate uh, the ambassador of Israel, uh, the people of Israel, uh, in celebration of the Independence Day of Israel. Yeah, it was really an honor to be invited. So thank you to the folks at the Israeli embassy for having me and many members of the Jewish Insider team. Uh, We had Secretary of Homeland Security, Ali Mayorkas, and a slew of what one DC insider called to me the maharocracy in one room. Uh, And lots of interesting folks from across the political spectrum, Republican, Democrat, J Street, AIPAC, all over the place coming together to celebrate the Independence Day of Israel and the 74th birthday. So uh, really great time and no better segue to, to our guest today, right? It is the Insider's Insider, our insider-ish insider for Capitol Hill, that is. Obviously, you should be reading your daily kickoff because you're getting incredible insights into Capitol Hill every day here at Jewish Insider. But we do have Jake Sherman, the founder of Punchbowl News. Jake has been covering national politics for more than a decade and has focused his reporting on Congress, the congressional leadership, and the politics of legislating. He chronicled all the major legislative battles of the Obama and Trump presidencies. He's doing it today under the Biden presidency as well. Jake and Anna Palmer are the co-authors of The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress, and The Future of Trump's America, which was a New York Times national bestseller in 2019. He's been reporting and writing with Anna and another Punchbowl News co-founder, John Bresnahan, for 11 years. He is a contributor to NBC News, appears almost daily across all the network's platforms, a graduate of George Washington University and Columbia Journalism School, and a pie brother at GW, as I'm sure we'll talk about. Lives in Washington with his wife and two children. He is an avid runner and listener of The Grateful Dead and Fish, which is a dead giveaway of a day school graduate. I'm sure we will talk to him. Jared, take it away. Jake, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Jake, listen, we wanted to start off because a lot of people would say that you're an agenda setter or the agenda setter in Washington. Do you view yourself in that way? And what does that responsibility mean to you if you do? Uh, I don't. Um, <laughs> you, you, you might not be surprised. Co, co-agenda that. setter. Co- co-agenda well, setter, I, sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, our, our goal every day uh, is to um, give people everything they need to know about the politics of governing and not much else, meaning we don't chase shiny objects. We don't um, – we, we don't um, 
we don't uh, uh, lead our, we try not to lead our readership astray. And um, uh, our, we don't like to be second on anything. We like to break a lot of news. That's kind of what we've been, what we've been doing for a long time, along with uh, John Bresnahan, Anna Palmer, uh, Heather Cagle, who's one of our most recent hires, who we all worked with at Politico, and uh, Christian Hall and Max Cohen, who are our two, uh, two our two first editorial hires. Actually, they they came to us uh, about a year ago. So uh, that's kind of how we view it, and that's how we view our our mission every day. You must get like a million pitches, contacts, quotes, people. Con- I got a tip. I heard this. I mean, so much stuff thrown at you based on the position you're in. Certainly, when you were at Playbook, now now here at Punchbowl, how do you sort through it all? Like, how do you figure out like all the stuff coming at you in your position? This looks like something we should use. This we should chase. This is this isn't for us. What's the decision making process? Yeah, so I mean, we have a pretty good sense of what our um, what our goals are and what works for us. Um, we do get a lot of incoming from a variety of people um, on Capitol Hill and elsewhere. Um, uh, we don't. We try not to chase things that don't move the ball forward. Um, we're not a public relations service, so um, we, we kind of try to stay away from that. But. Um, if it's not dispositive of the, you know, in the legislative process, either the politics or the policy, we usually take a pass. So that's kind of how we view it. Um, will this help people do their jobs the next day, help them understand issues that are tough to understand and things like that? That's kind of the that's kind of the goal every day. Jake, what's changed since you moved from playbook to punch bowl in terms of the agenda setting? How are the two different uh you know, we, we, we want to break it down for our listeners. Yeah. Manishana Halayla Hazeh, as they say. Yeah. Newsletter Hazeh. Newsletter Hazeh. That's right. Um, so I would say a few things. I mean, I, I, could, t- I could tell you what our, uh, without kind of commenting on, on Playbook's current iteration, which I don't want to do because they are, uh, I've known those guys for a long time. A lot of those guys are uh, Rachel Bade and Ryan Liz. I've known for a long time, and um, uh, Eugene. I've known a little bit when I was at uh, Eugene Daniels. I knew, I've known a little bit when I was at Politico. Um, but what I what, what our goal always is is we. I mean, we are much more focused on the nitty gritty of. Uh, how Washington works. So we're not going to get a ton into society and social things, which Playbook traditionally has gotten involved on, uh, gotten involved in rather. Um, And I'd say that is the, that's the main difference. And we're just very focused on the capital kind of as the center of the universe and as um, uh, the energy, kind of the, the, the center place in DC. Um, and I think that's kind of the main, the main difference, I would say. And also, listen, we have three issues a day. Um, we started the second edition of Playbook. We were at Politico. And now we started the uh, – we have three editions a day. Two are behind a paywall for our paying subscribers. And that's kind of the main thing. And also our event space is much different than it was at Politico, I would say. Um, we try to do uh, – our goal every day is to how do we get a chief of staff into the room and what do we do to do that? What kind of events are they interested in and things like that. So that's kind of a main difference as well. 
Well, that's a great segue because I think our audience would be interested to learn about the Punchbowl Townhouse, which which is unique. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole concept. Yeah. I mean, you get how did you get inspired to get a townhouse, and and is that very unique for publications in Washington? Well, it's our office too, so it's where our business staff works out of. We have we're up to eleven people. We have uh, five on the editorial team, and then six on the business staff. Uh, that includes our uh, uh, two of our co-founders, Anna Palmer and Rachel Schindler. Um, so we, uh, we wanted to find a place that a would serve as an office, but B could also serve as an extension of our con of our content. So bringing our content to life with events and things like that. So, um, it is unique, I would say, but I mean, a lot of places have offices. We're just a small company. So a townhouse kind of suits us better than a, a floor in an office building or even a, a, um, uh, even kind of a corner of an office building. It was, it was something that we thought would be really interesting and unique. And, and we, we just recently hosted our first event there, um, White House Correspondents Dinner Weekend. I was unable to attend because I had COVID. Um, but uh, uh, I've obviously been there many times and uh, I spend a lot of time there on usually on Fridays and uh, when Congress is not in session. And obviously, you have um, a, a paid premium side as well. Yep. Uh, yep. Others do as well, the pro, insider type type newsletters how do you view the difference between paid content and free content in a political reporting environment especially now in 2022 um so our um our paid product is um i mean it usually comes out the 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 after the morning edition comes out at 6 a.m ish the afternoon comes out at between one thirty and two thirty, and the evening comes out at um, around six. So a lot of it is just our most, uh, a ton of it is our most recent, you know, reporting and analysis from the Capitol, from you know the White House, not physically from the, the White House because we work out of the Capitol, but um, it is it is just really up to date reporting on. Uh, what you need to know about the pro- the progress of legislation, the progress of what's going on in the Capitol. We don't, and we have some features that are unique to premium subscribers. Number one, uh, and we have one this week. We do brown bag lunches once a month, where we kind of brief our our subscribers about what's going on in Washington, what's going on with legislation. They could ask questions, so that's something that people really like. Um, and. Uh, so that's those are kind of the main differences. It's not as if we um, only do the great stuff for the midday and PM, but we do great stuff m- morning, midday, and PM, and and subscribers get great stuff three times a day, which a lot of people want. Right. Sorry so, for the buzzer. The buzzer is I'm in the Capitol. Oh, they're voting. I, it's, it's oh, voting. no, that's that's, that, that's very authentic. It's no, they're not voting. They oh, are, no. um, uh, I guess, probably coming out of session because they probably came in at twelve. Are you on the House side or the Senate side? I am on the House side right now. I'm in the House periodic press gallery. So this is not a quorum call. This is not. This is not. No, the House is not in until six thirty, which is kind of the worst. But yes, the House is in at six thirty. Senate comes in around. Oh, that's the test. That's the test buzzing. I know that one. That's the. (laughs) No, this is just like going to lunch, and I just start hearing buzzing. It's like we're not until six thirty. Was the the buzzing? This is um, morning hour debate has kind of wrapped up. Whatever, not really important. I was just explaining. that it's you know an alarm is not going off <laughs> it's okay we're glad you're safe we're glad you're safe uh, we're, um, we're glad we're glad you're there at the source working it this is you yes, in your right. element live from that's the capitol right. that's right here that's right. on jewish insiders limited liability podcast that that's pretty intense jared i know you had a there question yeah so so maybe taking it just you've been a reporter for almost 20 years now 
uh, not to make you sound old, but you know, you're a grown up reporter and you've been in this industry for a while. What's changed for you in terms of covering Washington and, and the news business generally since you've become a reporter? Yeah, I'd say a few things. Um, number one, the, um, uh, the speed with which legislating is done, uh, the speed with which the news cycle kind of ex- has accelerated, obviously, the Trump era, and has kind of stuck around a little bit, although not nearly as fast as it was in the, in the Trump era. Um, number two, I, I mean, listen, as you get, I've been, a, I, I started at Politico in 2009, so not quite 20 years, but um, I guess that's 13 years or something like that. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it gets easier with time in some ways because you have, you kind of grow in prominence and you know more people and stuff like that. But it's still a grind. I mean, I still am up here, you know, 8.30 to 7 o'clock every day. I'm not, I, I don't get to mail it in. I don't, things don't come to me just because, you know, I've been a reporter for a long time. I have to work for it. So that's, uh, so while it's changed, it hasn't in some ways, I would say, Um but I feel lucky to do it every day. I really do. It's a fun job. Um, and now I get to do it for myself, which is even more fun. Now, I was going to say, you know, you're focused on Capitol Hill, but it, it's also an election year. Do you sort of have campaign minded goals within your coverage? How, how do you sort of fit, you know, the, mm-hmm. the background of members who are facing their own reelects, the politics of that within the politics of Capitol Hill itself? Uh, yeah, we're, we're in, we're kind of, that's a living, breathing discussion that we're having. Um, the uh, a few thoughts we like to, we cover everything through the frame of the leadership. Like our north star are the four leaders on Capitol Hill. So anything that we do is um, leadership centric. So how we how we view the campaign is what is leadership doing? How are they weighing in? Not weighing in? How will this impact the overall governing dynamic in D.C.? That doesn't mean we're not going to go out and do campaign stories. Um, we we are, and we also have. Uh, the tally, which is our our kind of our moniker for covering the campaign, so um, a little bit of everything. I mean, here in 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 the middle of of uh, uh, primary season, we're all over this. We're all over the spending and things of that nature. But we're not. We only again, we only have an, an editorial staff of five people, so we're not sending you know a ton of people out on the road to report on uh, on on campaigns because we don't have a ton of people. But that doesn't mean we won't at some point. Bring it to the po- political for a second. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot, and a lot has been a lot of ink has been spilled about APAC changing yeah. to an actual pack as opposed to mm-hmm. having their their members be the donors to the individual uh, members members of the House and Senate. Are you seeing a change in this dynamic on Capitol Hill in terms of the way uh, you know these some of these groups are operating? And and to, as a follow up, do you think that that's a, a, a helps APAC's effectiveness or 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 hurts it? I have my views. I know Rich does too. Yeah, uh, I have to be. I you know it's funny you say that. I try to stay away to the extent I can of of reporting on Israel and Israel politics and policy um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I think. Listen, I think APAC was always a political force, and this is kind of the natural progression of APAC being a political force, right? I mean, APAC. Um, didn't spend in campaigns for a long time and got away with saying they are a policy organization. But a policy organization is only 
as good as a policy organization can be. I mean, the the you need to have some teeth to that. I think. I think that's the main. That I'm curious for your guys' views. I mean, and you're also seeing DMFI on the other side, or not on the other side, but I, I want to be careful about how I how I characterize the other groups um, in the Israel space. But yeah, I mean, listen, it was a natural progression for APAC, probably something that they should have done a long time ago if you talk to people in that world. Um, but uh, it's too early to say how effective it's going to be. I know there's a lot of there's a lot of grumbling and griping. I mean, you saw this with Liz Cheney. They didn't endorse Liz Cheney out, out of the gate. And I think her, her pro-Israel credentials are pretty unimpeachable. Um, so they're going to have to deal with a lot of that, right? I mean, they could, they could say it's a separate organization that is, that is a PAC that is run by outsiders, but it's not. It's, it's indicative of where of, it is an extension of APAC, and, they, and they're going to have to kind of deal with the implications there. But I would say a, a lot of pro-Israel donors, a lot of donors in the pro-Israel space do their own thing and fund their own organizations and probably don't. And might not want to be in the, you know, give, forking over a bunch of money to APEC. I would say this also, um, the, the Israel, the pro-Israel uh, political space is pretty partisan. I would say as a general proposition, meaning you're going to support Republicans, you're going to support Democrats. I personally know a bunch of people who are supportive of APEC who would not be cool with forking over, you know, a hundred grand or whatever and having it go toward um, uh, Democrats or Republicans. I, I think that's going to be a problem that they're going to face. I'm curious what you guys think. That you know, it's an interesting point. It, it's a tension and a phenomenon that has grown. I'd say over the last 20 years. This is my personal observation. Um, I, I think what I think the new APAC pack is 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 great. I think they're doing a great job personally. I think we want to talk about a couple of races um, with you in a second. But to your question, I, I did see you know growing up that it was the expectation within sort of if you were a supporter of Israel, if you were in that lay leadership of affiliated with APAC but involved in giving, there was an expectation that you might be a Republican, but we're going to come to you and, you know, when a Democratic senator who has a great pro-Israel voting record comes to town, you know, you this is your time to say thank you, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat because that's how the issue stays that's just not, it's just not it's just not the way and anymore. you just can't get no. to people anymore it's just like no i i just can't support that person I can't yeah I, I, can i can i argue the other point for 15 seconds sure, sure. I, I think what always made apac always gave them the ability to say to stay above the fray is that by and large it was republicans supporting other republicans Democrats supporting other Democrats, and the organization didn't really have to take a position on any individual person. Um, so, you know, they would say... I, I actually, I think that's an evolution. I think that's what it became. <clears throat> I, I don't think that's what it was. Right, I think right, it but, ended up being, do we have enough Republicans willing to support Republicans, right. Democrats willing to support Democrats? It used to be, you know, the you, you would go through and say, like, how did this Republican big guy like have all these Democrats on the FEC report? Like, it's because right, but but I'm pro but I would argue that the rest of America has gotten so partisan that like this was a place where you could go and they would kind of you know uh, send the donations where they could do the most good for the cause, which is fine. But then you didn't have to kind of get involved in a lot of this other nonsense. Like, look what happened with the the APAC pack supporting people who would not certify, right? And look, that became a thing. 
Uh, Big time. And, and, yeah, and yeah. if that and if it was just the donors, like the the lay leaders doing it, you would have never heard that story, and no would have nobody would have ever gotten twisted about it because, of course, those Republicans who care about pro Israel issues are going to support pro Israel Republicans. Anyway, well, I know we but have speaking other, of impact. Speaking of impact. Speaking of impact, yeah, speaking sorry, of impact on specific races. So we have seen pro-Israel PACs making big plays in this cycle so far. The Nina Turner, Chantel Brown rematch comes to mind. This time, Brown handily defeating Turner. A lot of pro-Israel PAC involvement there. Jewish Insider reporting uh, very recently out of Pennsylvania 12. Steve Irwin now apparently surging with with pro-Israel PAC support against progressive Summer Lee. Are you watching that race at all? What do you think uh, is going to happen in in Pennsylvania 12? And sort of, you know, your overall view so far as you're you're watching the cycle. Yeah, uh, well, my over, I'll I'll start with the broad and I will um, uh, go, I will go back into the, um, the nitty gritty, I, my general view, uh, which is not, I, I think you would not be surprised about, is that re- I think Republicans will take the majority. Um, I think that um, even you heard I, it here first, I, folks. Uh, heard it here first. <laughs> even absent the um, the kind of bad uh, news on inflation and on the the markets and things like that, um, there is. I mean, Republicans just lose the the party in power just loses the majority in the first midterm of a president. I mean, that's just the case. It's just the, it's not, um, it's not, it's very difficult to move that. So I think Republicans take the majority in the house. I have no idea about the Senate. Um, I listen, I think a a few things um, uh, worth thinking about on some of these individual races. there are there's just an insane amount of money being spent in in primaries outside of the Israel space. I mean, the it's not as if Israel is completely dispositive in a lot of these races. I a lot I I understand. So I would say this. I would say that generally speaking, I think the donations are. I don't think that Israel politics plays a huge role. I, I, I think it does in some places. I think obviously the money is helpful, but I, I really don't think that in a lot of these races, people's view on Israel is playing a huge role, especially in, in these primaries. I could be wrong. There could be races where it is a big thing. I just don't, I don't, I, I don't see it as a big thing. I think the larger dynamics of, you know, uh, the left versus kind of the middle of the party and things of that nature are much more um, are much more pronounced than than someone's views on Israel. I, I just think that I think it's mostly a a donor motivating thing and less a a an actual issue, if that makes sense. So I would just say one caveat to that and is is the Chantel Brown Nina Turner race for sure. Yep. The, right. Yep. Okay. So that, yep. that is You're all right. so. But and you alluded to it a second ago, Jake. But you know, Rich and I talk a lot about the alleged civil war going on in the Democratic Party. Um, do you think it is an actual civil war, or do you think it yeah. is a few outliers? No, um, I think it's. I think it's an actual civil war. I mean, I, I don't know about war, but it's an actual. It's an actual big deal. Um, in that um, the party is split between people who think that the moderate path is the way to go versus people who don't. And I think that is just that is just a um, I, that is a, a fundamental difference in the reading of the 2020 election between people and between members of the Democratic caucus. I mean, we saw this a million times. We saw it with BBB. We saw it with the infrastructure bill. I mean, it's a big deal. It's a big 
it's a the the progressive wing of the party believes that yeah, I don't have to rehash this for you, but believes that um, their mandate is to be as aggressive as possible. And the Josh Gottheimers of the world and people of that nature believe that uh, it's not the way to go and they're going to lose their majority. It's the kind of age old, do we m- maintain a majority or spend a majority? Uh, right. And those and Democrats have, by and large, decided to spend their majority, to spend their political capital and not to save it. And um, and I, there are there are ups and downs to both of those things. Let me let me try to reframe the question on an Israel specific way sure. uh, that, that that might really get at, at Jared's question. And that is you, you think about like Steny Hoyer, right? Sure. You know, l- has led so many trips of Democratic freshmen to Israel over the years. Um, and you think about the squad and AOC and, and others uh, grooming the next generation of progressive leaders that they want to see elected to the House. Two very different viewpoints on Israel specifically. Yes. Uh, within their perhaps broader differing on moderate, progressive, how they approach issues. Do you see influence differing, declining from, from the Hoyers of the world with new members on the Israel-specific issue? Let me put it this way. I think 10 years ago, um, even when I was a reporter um, in my career, um, speaking out against Israel, I think, was um, a place you didn't go if you were a a Republican or a Democrat, but specifically, I guess both. I mean, I don't want to single out any party here. Now it is a place you could go with little consequence, um, politically, I would say. Um, I don't know if you guys disagree with me on that. But just the volume of people who are very critical about Israel has ratcheted up. Um, And I think that is a result of a lot of factors. I think it's a result of, um, uh, I'm trying to be very careful here with how I say this. I think think it's a result of um, people feeling, a constituent's feeling that they, that, um, uh, you know, disagreeing with Israel's policies and, and members reflecting that. And I think, I think, here's what I always come back to in my personal life, um, not in my personal life, but among my peers. And this is like the most cliche thing of all time. So you guys have probably heard this argument a million times. I'm 36. My parents are 60, whatever, four. Um, in their lifetime, the existence of Israel, I think, was never a foregone conclusion. And I think that you had to just publicly be uh, and I'm not talking about myself. I'm just using my parents and just to, for everybody to be clear, my parents and my generation, the difference there. Um, so I think you had to just be unflinchingly pro-Israel to maintain that, you know, that um, to make to ensure Israel's existence. I think now Israel is basically a first world, not basically, is a first world powerful country with a massive economy, a massive military. And people believe that, you know, its existence, I'm not stating this as fact, but believe its existence is uh, uh, kind of solidified and feel like they need to be able to criticize it because it's not this fledgling up and coming country. I think, and I think you see that in the electorate. I do. I think just a, a younger generation of people um, not, I, I'm not talking about myself, but a younger generation of people are just more willing to be like, wait a second, what is this country doing now? Right, wrong, or indifferent? I don't know. I'll leave that up to everyone else to decide. Uh, and I just think you see that reflected in members and you see that reflected in elect in, in voters. 
I happen to agree with that personally. I, I've come to the same conclusion. The distance from the Holocaust, the distance oh, from sure. from wars that were existential and in, in a time without social media where people went to synagogue praying and thinking, is it over? Is Israel gone? You know, 73. Um, that, you know, this generation has no concept of any of that. No. Uh, and I think, to be honest with you, uh, to dip to dip even farther, uh, and thank God for this, but post-Second Intifada, so post-early 2000s, generally speaking, I'm speaking very generally here, Israel's been safe, right? I mean, there have been flare-ups in Gaza, there have been flare-ups other places. I mean, I, I, I understand there's been flare-ups, but there's not, there's not been nothing like the Second Intifada, which I think defined my generation's view of Israel, which is like, holy Lord, we could go to a Sabaros and get blown up in the middle of Jerusalem, like... That's a big deal. And I think just the fact that there haven't been, there's been a period of relative, again, relative calm. I'm not underplaying, uh, you know, I've, I have a brother-in-law who lives in Israel who I think about all the time and, and my niece, my, my, my niece and nephew and my sister-in-law. So I, I'm very cognizant. I have a lot of family in Israel. I'm very cognizant of the dangers everyday Israelis face. That said, I, I, I think the relative calm has played into the sense that like, people are more free to criticize. So, and you just alluded to it, but you visit Israel from time to time. You have family there. Yep. Does the time on the ground affect how you see the conversation in DC? Um, not really. Okay. Um, it's okay. I, I, <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't really. Well, because you I had mean, mentioned that you, you're careful in how you report and all that. I, I'm, I mean, careful it, I'm in how I curious. report because, I mean, listen, it is outside of my area of expertise, which is Congress, for the most part, I don't get into foreign policy, I don't get into um, international relations. When Israel comes up in Congress, I report on it, I just try to, as a Jew, who's a um, modestly observant Jew, who is, um, I just, I find it better to just like I wouldn't, you know, there are other things I stay away from because I have personal interest in them. And I just, I just find it better and safer for me in my life, not safer physically, but just it's something that I'm very connected to as a, a human. And uh, I, I am the subject of lots of criticism, much of it deserved um, and some of it not deserved. And I, I want to just be careful about how I report on things that I have personal stakes in, if that makes sense. I mean, it, I, I just kind of think that it's um, – that's kind of just my personal opinion. Um, I, I know a lot of people would disagree with me, and I'm sure I'll hear from all of them. Um, so, so you can't write a story about the future of AEPI is what you're saying? Well, as an AEPI alum, alumnus, um, <laughs> I, I would not be writing about any tax breaks that AEPI is seeking to get uh, anywhere in the world. A very distinguished uh, pledge class, I believe, uh, from GW that you did you share. Moshe Nunu, I believe. No, uh, Moshe, Moshe was older. Moshe was older than me. He was Moshe, older. Okay. Moshe actually was not even in college when I got into college, but he was in grad school. So he was um, he was kind of um, in the like uh, chapter advisor. Or? Well, he was just he was mostly an annoyance, but. Um, <laughs> He's, he's, he's one of my dearest friends, so I could say that with, with impunity. Alex Berger, Peter Feldman, Alex other, other Peter famous were, alum. Alex yes. and Peter were both in my fraternity with me at that time. So while I was not in AEPI, my older brother was and worked for AEPI as a chapter consultant for a year after college. Oh, one so. of my best friends, and I, I can name this person, and I guarantee you, 
Um, you know, one of you knows him or knows somebody who knows him. Uh, Donnie Greenspan. Um, Donnie is uh, one of my dearest friends. Someone I go to a lot of fish shows with, um, which are basically API reunions. But um, uh, <laughs> by the works. way, anytime your your bio has you favorite band Fish, which yeah. is like the giveaway. It's like, hi, I went to Jewish day school and summer right. camp, and I, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, and yeah, yes. my favorite band's Fish. I, I, and so anyway, he worked for API traveling the country, um, kind of consulting for chapters. And this would have been like two thousand five, six ish around okay. that time. Yeah, my brother might have been a little bit before it. But Jake, speaking of your your love of fish and API, tell yeah. us a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up, did you go to day school, yeah. and and how, if at all, that impacts how you do your job or approach. Yeah, I I um I am um I'm from Connecticut, from Stanford, Connecticut, which is a relatively large and vibrant Jewish community. Um, I did go to day school. Uh, I went to bicultural day school in Stanford, which is uh, kindergarten through eighth grade. It's now changed its name to the Bicultural Hebrew Academy. Um, I think they combined with something else, but um, I'm actually an, uh, the alumni honoree at this year's dinner dance, which just means... Oh, yeah, well, that's it's, exciting. It's, it's, it's That very, will be in the premium side of Punchbowl. Yeah, I, and, and I bet you... There. I bet you it'll be in J.I.'s Insider in the morning. Yeah, it might be. Uh, my wife is um, – so I, I grew up in a cons- both in a conservative and in an orthodox synagogue. Um, uh, now we um, – my parents belong only to the orthodox synagogue. Um, I went to Jewish summer camp. I went to Camp Laurelwood in Madison, Connecticut, which is a uh, actually a uh, federation camp. Um, and uh, gets a lot of money from the, feder- from the New Haven Federation. Um, and my wife is from Houston and she is a proud graduate, uh, of day school there of Baron Academy. Um, Oh, the Baron, the Baron, uh, the Baron basketball team. Yes. When they wouldn't, when they, they had to forfeit a game cause they wouldn't play on Shabbos. Yes, that's right. That's Baron the, Academy. Is, yeah. I visited big, them during that, that, uh, that saga. Yes. That is a, um, that is a, uh, a big, um, a big, you know, Houston, I didn't know this before I, was with my wife, but Houston is just a massive Jewish community, uh, very, and a, also an incredibly vibrant Jewish community, which I've spent a lot of time in and around. So, and my wife com- comes from a very large family that's very, very involved in Jewish causes and Jewish things, and so are my parents in, in Connecticut. So, and we, and my kids go to you know Jewish school here, and um, we belong to Addis Israel and DC Minion. We are a multi shul family at the nice. moment um uh so yeah i mean we are we are uh very much practicing and observant you know jews both of my brothers-in-law i hope i knowing my my wife's my mother-in-law this this podcast will be going far and wide uh so i'm i would be remiss to say my brother-in-law and both my brothers-in-law are rabbis so i am the only member of my wife's family that is not in the rabbinate uh so there's I, still time. Yeah. There's still, time. There is still time. That's, that's, I a tough, that's a tough room to walk into at Passover. Well, it's not really. I mean, they're, they're, they are very bright and very smart. Um, my brother-in-law, David, uh, my wife's sister's husband, is a the head of the upper school at Milken Academy in L.A., uh, the head rabbi. And my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, is in yeshiva in Israel uh, uh, in, at Otniel, which is uh, near Hebron. So, um, I, you know, listen, I tried to do Dafyomi a few years ago, um, through <laughs> podcast and, um, I was like, I loved it. 
I, I really did. I really, really, really did. Um, but I cannot, I don't have the patience. And I, I was like, man, seven years of this is going to be wild. So I couldn't, I couldn't. <laughs> Could you I, imagine like just restructuring Punchbowl, like just to do it like a tractate of Gamora? Like it would be so know, much better. Listen, like, you just ask a question and then like have like John come in and argue with you. Yeah. And then, you know, see. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't know who would be Hillel and who would be Shaman, but it would be something, uh, it would be something uh, uh, interesting to watch. All right, Jake, I have a question about your coverage during the Trump years. We're going back. This is real now. This is real. This is real. I was having too much fun, okay. but let's get that. Right. Let's serious. So you, get serious I, get, you were serious very get. influential in your coverage during the Trump years. wonder if there are any stories you could share with us. We even heard a rumor that, uh, that the president used to call you on your cell phone, a la Maggie Haberman. No, and, well, and, I, was, I would not put myself in the same category as Maggie, but I – interviewed the president i interviewed the president i interacted with him i knew many members of his administration i knew mark meadows quite well because he was a member of congress um so for those last kind of i guess he was there two years at the end um i i knew him quite well and um i i I think the the my biggest achievement of the of the trump years was i wrote a book with my partner anna um, and we did a book event at the Houston JCC uh, and at the Stanford JCC. So we are, I took Anna, who's not Jewish, on a tour of Jewish institutions uh, uh, <laughs> for the book. But um, no, we, I, I wrote a book called The Hill to Die On, The Battle of Congress and the Future of Trump's America, which was um, kind of the Trump years from the view of Capitol Hill. So that was the, that was kind of my biggest, um, my biggest uh, moment in that, in those years. So to, to, as a follow up to that, what is the, the balance that you had to achieve from, you know, in covering Donald Trump, somebody who's looking to pick a fight with the press, you you have to cover him obviously because the president and it's news, but there was, you know, a feeling out there that some reporters were giving him too much oxygen and they were sort of, enablers to all of his shenanigans how do you how do you balance that yeah i don't i don't think he's the president um or was the president at the time um so i don't really fall into the you could you could you're not supposed to cover him because he says crazy stuff camp i think that's a that's a a crazy mentality um i you know listen it was a an the, the biggest frustration for me was the fact that any given day he could say something and reverse lots of work of many people on Capitol Hill um, and kind of blow up very. Um, or NSC staffers, as Rich learned. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> blow up kind of everything, you know, everything. The, the colonel sat, sat, sat pretty close to me, not too far away. Well, you know, just blow up all sorts of stuff in the, um, in that, sp- in, in all sorts of stuff in the, um, legislative space so uh I, I think that was a difficult i think that was a difficult dynamic for a lot of people who are covering it i was not a trumpologist like maggie i maggie is a is a an expert on donald trump and and you know the great thing about maggie I, i'm only saying this because you mentioned her is Ma- maggie uh is incorrectly typecast as a as only being focused on Trump. I mean, you know, people will remember Maggie was the best Hillary Clinton reporter. Maggie was a tr- tremendous reporter on everything that she did. So and, and and she covered Mike Bloomberg in the in the race in 2001, which is where she and I got to know each other when I was a young press assistant. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't I didn't. Yeah, she that. she yeah. was the beat reporter. She was the beat reporter in the mayor's race. Mike Bloomberg versus Mark Green summer of 2001. Yeah, I mean, that's a big that was a big uh, uh 
yeah, she's she was amazing. She's amazing still. I mean, so um, but she had a real beat on what Trump was thinking at all times, as did um, as did a lot of other people. Uh, Jonathan Swan at Axios comes to mind, obviously. So, I mean, there's just a lot of um, there are a lot of people who are much better than me at that. So you covered obviously the Obama years as well, uh, not just the Trump years. Now you're covering the Biden years. Uh, we we do a lot of comparison of Trump v. Biden. I'm actually interested in your take on Obama v. Biden, how you compare the two administrations and the dynamics on Capitol Hill. I think Biden's better with the Hill than, than, than um, Obama was. Um, Obama had a tough time with Congress um, on a whole host of things. And we'll, the jury's out on Biden, right? I mean, Biden's gotten, whether you like or dislike Biden, he has gotten a lot done, more than people give him credit for, I would say. Uh, an infrastructure bill is massive. I mean, he's had to, they've had to do $60 billion to Ukraine, also a huge deal. I mean, there's just, he might get this big tech, not this big chips bill through, uh, which would help boost the, um, the uh, uh, competitiveness vis-a-vis the Asia when it comes to semiconductors. Um, he's gotten a lot done. Uh, Obama got a lot done, but Biden, I just think is a little bit, his administration is a little bit better and more connected to the Hill. You had a big scoop that I was very interested in uh, not too long ago about uh, these uh, motions to instruct that were going through the Senate yep, on, the, yep. on that uh, China. Wait, bill. hold on. This is the longest you've uh, ever gone on a podcast before we've gotten to Iran, Rich. I just want to say that. So I'm proud of you, bud. I, I, I'm working on it. Okay. You know, I'm seeing a therapist. Okay. And, you know, we'll, we'll <laughs> oh, no, no. But in all uh, seriousness, this is this is an uh, important topic, and we do need to keep people yeah, it's off very important. Yeah. It's very important. No, no. So I, so I think I could say it now. I don't know if it was on the exclusive side or whatever. But it's, no, it's, you, you could say the, anything. Yeah. The, yeah the, you guys had a big scoop that it, it looked like Dem leadership sort of walked into a unanimous consent agreement on a couple of big votes um, that, you know, they're symbolic, but symbolism in this case really matters. And one of them was uh, Senator Lankford's uh, motion to instruct that was basically like, yeah, everything you're right now negotiating in Vienna that could be this Iran nuclear deal, uh, we reject it. And and I mean, overwhelming bipartisan. Senator Schumer even had to vote for it. You you reported that the White House pushback saying, hey, why did you agree to this? Get out of this. Vitiate the UC. Do whatever you can. Uh, I'm kind of wondering, after that vote, what are you hearing? I mean, it is... Did the White House get a message here? Are they still sort of like, okay, we're still moving forward if we get a deal? Is it possible with with Biden's numbers where they are that he could actually face bipartisan opposition on the Hill? He will face bipartisan opposition on the Iran – if there is an Iran deal. I'd say a few things. We reported uh, on a blowup between House Democrats and – the administration over just the information they're getting on the Iran deal. I mean, Brett McGurk was forced up to Capitol Hill on a couple occasions. Um, I'm sure, Rich, you worked with McGurk probably in the White in the uh, where he he might have been gone by the time you were at the White House. But yeah, um, I left him. Yeah. yeah, but he um, undoubtedly you know him. If not, you know him. You know of him for sure. Um, uh, he, you know, they, the the Hill has been in the dark, which is not something they really like to be uh, in. Um, <laughs> I would say there's a lot of skepticism that a deal will come together. Um, Langford's move was really put them in a box uh, and they had to try to back away from it, which was never, uh, he was pretty angry about. They did give him a vote uh, at a 60, I think it was at a 60 vote threshold. 60 vote threshold. Uh, Yeah, yeah. and it passed, I think, with 63 votes. Um, Now, listen, these motions to instruct are not binding, obviously. They're very symbolic and political, but it, it is 
kind of a, a siren that, that the administration has problems when it comes to Iran. And I think we could say that about every administration uh, vis-a-vis Iran. Yeah, and and the interesting thing is I, I remember some of the reporting on the House Democratic Caucus having its own internal blow-up yep. on whether or not they wanted the White House to bring the deal for a vote uh, under the existing yep. statute or whether they would try to withhold and say, oh, it's still the same deal. We're not going to have to submit I think they anything. Would, I think they would be leaning in the latter direction, but I think they'll be forced to put it up for a vote. I don't think it's like if I If I was a vulnerable Democrat in reelect, if I'm Godheimer, I want to vote. Give me a vote. Like, so why, does Sh- I, I, I think Schumer vote? No. would, too. I think Menendez would, too. I think a lot of these guys would like to vote and would like to show some space. Uh, Max Cohen, who's now behind me, is one of our reporters who's been covering some of the opposition to um, uh, the Iran deal from the Democratic caucus the house democratic caucus point of view uh i think uh, and max could correct me if i'm wrong but there were more than a dozen house democrats who held a press conference basically saying like we're concerned about this which is a big deal i mean you guys both know from your your previous work and and current work that um uh this is a touchy topic on the hill and a lot of constituencies want a lot of different answers um so it's it's a it's it's a it's a political minefield for them so one last substantive question before okay. we get to the lightning round, um, which is very exciting. Uh, so as you, as you mentioned, it's looking more and more like that Dems are going to lose the House. Do yep. we think there is a mass turnover in leadership if they do? Is, yes. So like who's staying, who's going, handicap it for us? I think the general consensus, I won't say what I think because I'm wrong on this all the time. The general consensus is Pelosi's gone. Warrior might try to hang on. Hakeem Jeffries is somebody who um, would probably ascend. There's a lot of people who want to be in leadership. I mean, Adam Schiff has toyed with it uh, since his statewide ambitions are probably shelved for the moment, uh, at least in its current configuration. Um, So I think that's the Republican leadership will stay the same. We'll have to see. Uh, what Elise Stefanik does, a whole host of people are are going to be looking for opportunities. And are the Dems going to tolerate leadership in both houses from the five boroughs? That's a good question. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean it's, uh, uh, it's it's a New York it's a New York heavy environment. By the way, I'm fine with it. Just so we're clear. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I'm okay with it too. I mean, I I don't I I am not somebody who hates on the coasts, having spent my life on the East Coast, but um, I. Uh, New York is definitely overrepresented, I would say, in the uh, in the leadership structures. Lightning round time. Lightning, Lightning round. round time. Let's do it. Okay. Right. Okay. You go ahead, Rich. You, favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Oh Jesus! Profanity um, is totally allowed as long as it's in Yiddish. Uh, that's a good question. I I don't want this is like I have so many that are going through my head. Um, that I, you know, I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell you. It's like a Rorschach test, the Yiddish yeah. Rorschach yeah. test. So whatever is, actually came in first is, is everything we need to which, know. Which I am, I am going to fail. I can't really think of, of something that would be worthwhile of this answer. Um, I, 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 goodness gracious. Let's pass on that for the time being. Okay, we can come back one. to that one. All right. The okay. second one is um, Yankees, Mets, or Nationals? Nationals, 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 Nationals. I am a big Washington Nationals fan. Um, my daughter, I was a Mets fan growing up. My daughter was born uh, in 2019, and at her baby naming, I said, I hope this is the year the Nationals win the World Series. Everyone laughed at me, and they won the World Series. I, But listen, I've been in D.C. For, since 2004, so I mean, I've kind of, 
I've had to switch my allegiances. I know I get I get shit for it from all my friends who still live in New York and who grew up with me as a Mets fan. But you know what? This is just who I am. I'm a Nats fan. Okay. Favorite Israeli or Jewish food? Oh God, I am like a I am a uh, massive Middle Eastern and Israeli food fan, and I am. Um, I first of all, I, a few. I have a few thoughts here. Number one. I'll tell you some things that I, some some places in DC that I love. Um, uh, Shuk, which is amazing, which is kind of fast casual Israeli food. I know the owner. It's a terrific restaurant uh, from which I order a lot. Sababa is good. Um, I am like, listen, I'm a schnitzel fan. I'm a falafel fan. So I don't know. I mean, I'm just like nothing, nothing too crazy. But um, I am. I haven't been. So I haven't been back to Israel since I went once with Pompeo in 2019 i was there for like 16 hours or something crazy like that we landed at like two in the morning and we or you know midnight or something like that and then we were off the next afternoon like took off for the next stop which i think was brussels the next afternoon so i haven't been back in a real way since like 2016 i need to get back and i need to get back to machme yuda and yudale which are my two favorite restaurants in jerusalem by a mile okay Fantastic. All right, you want to come back to your Yiddish word of phrase? I'll tell you a funny. I'll tell you a funny story that's not really dispositive here, but um, my, I I lived on the Upper West Side as any good Jew does when I was in grad school at Columbia, and I was a frequenter of Alibaba, which if you've lived on the Upper West Side, uh, it is a I think it's like a Moroccan falafel place that stays open. Until is it like, still there? Is Alibaba I, still there? I think it has to be. That place just cleaned up. That place, but like it went like so downhill. Like, like I don't know. <laughs> well, this, 10 I years can only ago. speak about. I can only speak about where it was in two thousand and. I agree. Nine. Oh, I remember. Nine. That was. That was. That I was lived it. across the street from Estehana on Seventy Ninth Street for a period of time, which I, is. I, I was like, I'll tell you what, man. When I was living in New York, I was, um, I was across from a kosher bagel place called I think it was called the Bagel Basket on Ninetieth and Amsterdam. Um, I was like in Jewish food heaven for that year, which is probably why I gained like 20 pounds at that point. Um, but all that said, one a couple of years later when I was living in D.C., my wife and I were on the Upper West Side. She's like, Alibaba, is, like, why is the stock so crazy just about this one falafel place? And I was like, no, 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 separate Alibaba. That's a Chinese technology company. This is like a, <laughs> a single location falafel That's place awesome. on the Upper West Side. Uh so anyway, it, it is a, um, it was a, uh, I was in like Jewish food heaven for, uh, for that year, which is uh, probably why I should never live in New York again. <laughs> Jake Sherman, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, really enjoyed having you on. Thanks guys. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Whoa.